Great. Grace and peace to you. For those who uh, don't know me, my name's Sam. I'm the pastoral resident here at Holy Cross, and it's my joy to get to bring you God's word this morning. Real quick, before we get started, it is Family Worship Sunday, and I know some of you are nervous. So we do this for a reason. We do Holy Cross Kids for a reason. The whole purpose of Holy Cross Kids is to grow your children and their knowledge and love of Jesus until they're ready to be in here. Because we want them to be in here. We want your children to sit under God's word just like we want you to. And so Family Worship Sundays is a chance for us to practice that. Now, some of our kids, you know, they're ready in first grade, second grade. Some of them are ready in fourth or fifth grade. But today is an opportunity for your kids to practice being in here because they're part of our covenant community. They're members of this church and we want them in here. So what that means is if your kid has the meltdown today, it's okay. It's your week. It might be my kid's week next week. It'll be somebody else's kid for sure. So it's okay. If they knock your tumbler over, if you knock your tumbler over, it's okay. Just hang tight. We're gonna, I see you, Brandon. It's okay. We're gonna make it through it. It's okay. All right. Our text this morning comes from John chapter five. So if you'll stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word. John chapter five. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In this lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you wanna be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that, was, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. Will you pray with me? God of grace, thank you for your word. We pray that you would work faith in our hearts through it. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, before we jump into this incredible story, I want us to take a minute and talk about the context. The title of our sermon this morning is Encountering Emmanuel. Now, it's the time of year we're probably the most familiar with that title, Emmanuel, right? It's, it's a Christmassy word, we're familiar with it in regards to Christmas, and that's because it comes from a prophecy in Isaiah 
that talks about the coming savior, that talks about how God will send a Messiah that will be the savior of the world and he'll be called Emmanuel. And the name simply means God with us. Well, what does that have to do with our text this morning? You know, I think it's useful because coming out of the Christmas season, we can often be left asking, what now? You know, Jesus has come, the baby's been born, we've spent the whole Advent season and longing and preparation and thought on the coming savior, and now it's over. Well, what now? What, what happens next? Well, luckily, the book of John, in many ways, is written to answer that very question. You see, John's goal in writing his gospel is to know what it looked like when God stepped into the world. What did it look like for the God of eternity to come down to a broken people? What did it look like when broken, sinful people encountered that God, when they encountered Emmanuel? Now, throughout his gospel, John uses different, different ways to explain this, to show what it looks like. He, he talks about Jesus as the light of the world, the Jesus, the light that is shined in the darkness, as the savior of the world, the true and better temple through which we can truly worship God. And one major way John illustrates what it looks like for God to be with us in his gospel is by writing about seven signs that Jesus did during his ministry. Signs that include healing and miraculous works like feeding the 5,000 and raising the dead. And this morning, we're gonna focus in on one particular sign, the one that is in our passage. And we're gonna see what it shows us about encountering Emmanuel. And this brings us to our second point, really our first point. Do you want to be made whole? See, as we enter into this scene, John is, is painting a picture for us. He tells us that Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem and that it's a feast day. Now, let me explain what that means. The, the Jews in Israel had a religious calendar that they followed, and this was a good thing. It was a way in which they gave honor and worship to God. And there are all sorts of feast days throughout the calendar, but there were at least three feast days that we know of that all Jewish men were required to go up to Jerusalem and to offer sacrifices. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, who is a good and faithful Jew, is going up to Jerusalem to go to the temple and to offer sacrifices as was required of him. And it's on his way into the temple that Jesus, passing through what's called the sheep gate, it means what it means, it's a gate where livestock would have been brought into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus is passing through the sheep gate and he passes by a pool, a pool called Bethesda. Now this pool was probably there for watering the sheep, right? Like this is the sheep gate, this is when, this is within sight of the temple actually. And so as the sheep are coming in, probably a lot at this point, they're coming in to get some water and on their way to, um, there's kids in here, have their last day before they go into the temple. If you're tracking with me. And so Jesus is passing through this gate and it tells us something interesting. There's something weird going on here. This pool is not just being used to water sheep anymore. See, this pool, what the context tells us here in John is that this pool is the site of miraculous healings. So it, it doesn't give us a lot of explanation as to why this is happening, but it is happening. Uh, the, the name Bethesda actually means God's mercy or the place of pouring out. And so it's a place where, for whatever reason, for some time now, healings were occurring. And this is particularly 
meaningful because this is an, a point in the history of God's people where it seemed like God was silent. For around 400 years, there had been no prophecy. For that whole time, their Israel had been going through so much traumatic events. They, their religious leaders were corrupt. It was more of a political office that was used to manipulate. And they're being ruled over by, by the Roman Empire. This is a tough time. But yet, for whatever ridiculous reason, God in his goodness had decided to show mercy at this watering hole. And so Jesus is coming through the gate. He passes by this place where God shows mercy and he's looking over a crowd of sick, broken people. All of them hoping to get their chance to get into the pool to be healed. And John tells us that Jesus focuses in on this one man, a man who had been lame for 38 years, which is longer than a lot of people even lived back then. It's a long time. And Jesus comes to the man and asks him a simple question. Do you want to be healed? So let's take a second and think about this. I think a little more background is gonna help. Let's start with talking about the temple for just a second. You see, the temple was not just a place God's people went to worship. It was the place God's, God's presence dwelt among his people. It was the place that sacrifices were offered for the sins of God's people. It was absolutely paramount to the religious life of God's people. It was the center of his promises to them. Now, in our Old Testament passage we read this morning, we read very briefly about how the priest with physical deformities could not enter into the innermost part of the temple. <clears throat> you were probably wondering why in the world we read that passage. We read that passage because it shows us what it meant to be able to enter into God's presence. You see, there's the big temple, and then there's all sorts of different parts, but there's the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And that is where the actual presence of God, the real eternal God of the universe, that is where his actual presence dwelt amongst his people. And the only people who could enter into that were certain priests who were to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. God's people. And those priests had to be as close to flawless as possible. I didn't read the whole, I didn't have us read the whole passage because it's pretty wild. You can go back and read it later. You can ask Kent questions about it. It's, it's something else. But these men who were to be priests had to be so close to, close to physically perfect. Why was that? Well, the reason for that was because the priests were meant to reflect what God's restored creation would look like. See, God is holy and perfect. And in the state of brokenness, creation cannot dwell in his presence. And so for priests to enter in, they had to as much as possible reflect God's, God's restored creation. This is a kind of a guttural, earthy, hard to, hard to get a hold of type of thing. It's God saying, I am a holy God and I, and I am not gonna let your distorted version of my creation be in my presence. It's, it's a little harsh but it's reality because of how good and perfect God is. And so the priest who went into the innermost part, they had to go past this big curtain to get into that part to offer sacrifices, into that holy of holies. And only those without physical blemishes could do so. All right, so that's the temple. Let's talk for a second about the lame man. So at this point in Israel's history, the religious leaders had taken the rules we just talked about for the priests, 
and they had extended it to all of God's people. And what they had decided was no one with physical deformities or any kind of blemishes could enter into the temple at all. And so what that meant for this lame man was that these egregious rules that had gone way beyond what God intended barred him from ever entering into the temple. His disability meant he could never go into God's presence. And based on the standards of the day, he was viewed as a physical manifestation of the curse of sin. He represented what God detested about his broken creation. And for 38 years, this man had borne that shame. For an unknown number of years, he had laid by the pool, hoping and longing for a miracle, literally laying within sight of the temple, which he would never be allowed into. Think of what this meant for this man. He had no proper place amongst the people of God. He couldn't even take part in the worship and sacrifices that were required of him as a Jewish man. And Jesus comes to him and says, would you be healed? In this question is more than an inquiry about restored health. It's an inquiry about restored wholeness. You see, Jesus is asking him, not just would you be healed physically, but would you like access to God? Would you like to be an example of God's saving power rather than an example of the curse of sin? Do you see how like this man we are? Hear me out. You and I and all people are born under the curse of sin. You know, and whether our bodies do or don't, you know, show that brokenness of creation. If they don't now, they will at some point. The curse of sin is still baked into our bones. And in this state, we cannot be in God's presence. The holy God of eternity will not permit for the twisted version of his creation to come into his holy presence. In fact, if we did, we'd be destroyed. And yet, he comes to us. Jesus, who was in the beginning with God, who is the light that overcomes darkness, Jesus comes and took on flesh and became one of us. Not only did he come, he came and he made a way, a way for us to be reconciled to God. You see, just like the lame man, you and I are hopeless in our natural state. We don't have the ability or the right to enter into God's presence because our sin is not simply something we do, it's part of who we are. And because of that, we could never come before a holy God. We can never make right the wrong that is part of us, but Jesus makes a way. Just as Jesus in his great mercy makes this man whole, so has Christ done for us. You know, in this passage, there really is profound imagery as to the saving work of Christ. Here Christ takes a man whose brokenness would have kept him from God's presence and he makes him whole, restoring his access to covenant communion with God. So how does Christ do the same for us? Well, in chapter five of, of the book of Hebrews, we're told how Jesus in his death functions both as a perfect high priest and as a perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the greatest of all priests, a priest without any blemishes, offers himself as the sacrifice for the sins of his people. A once and for all sacrifice that will once and for all remove the stains from God's people. And we're told that when Christ dies, 
when his sacrifice is offered, something special happens. The veil in the temple is torn. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence, from the rest of the temple. That veil has now been opened through the blood of Christ. So what does that mean? It means that like the lame man, Jesus has not simply restored your access to the temple. He has made us so whole that we have direct access to the presence of God. Now you might be thinking, sounds great. I don't feel that whole. I don't feel that good or pure. You aren't. But Jesus is. And we need to take a minute to touch on an idea here. The idea of our union with Christ. You see, by grace, by faith, you have been unified with Christ. And that is just an incredible, great and holy mystery. But what it means is that God no longer looks at you and sees the lame man. He no longer looks at you and sees broken creation. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. It's not about how you feel. If you have encountered Emmanuel, you have been made whole. And that brings us to our second point. Sin no more. Unless we should assume that in our union with Christ, we can start to live carelessly, we need to look closely at the lame man's second encounter with Emmanuel. So he encounters him a second time. Jesus goes to the temple, continues on his way, and he finds this man in the temple, worshiping, enjoying his renewed access. And Jesus says, see, you've been healed. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, it sounds kind of ridiculous to tell someone who's been slain for 38 years that not, something worse could happen to them, but Jesus is adamant. There are much worse things than physical deformity, than shame and rejection that can happen to us. Specifically, the punishment that awaits those who would neglect the grace of God. But what else is happening here? It's important as we work through this story that we keep the order of the narrative in mind. You see, Jesus did not tell the man to stop sinning before he healed him. Jesus didn't tell him to stop sinning right after he healed him. No, he waits until he finds the man in the temple and then, and only then, does he command him, sin no more. Why is this? Well, I think it's because we're meant to see that the command to obey does not precede God's work in making us whole. You see, it's not that Jesus says, all right, you've been laying by the pool for 38 years. I know you tried really hard. All right, you can come into God's presence now. It's not that you've been living good enough for a while now. I'll make you whole. You can have access to the temple. Jesus comes to the man and makes him whole, gives him restored access to God, and then commands his obedience. And what does this look like for us? The same order is true for us as believers. God did not wait for you to get your stuff together to make you whole or to give you communion with him. If he had, he would still be waiting. For each and every one of us, we are as helpless as the lame man, helpless to heal ourselves 
And yet God comes and initiates relationship with us. By grace, he creates faith in our hearts through the work of his Holy Spirit, drawing us to himself, saving us. And once we are brought to salvation through faith in the work of Christ, then he commands us to sin no more. Here's the reason this is important. Never at any point since the fall has anyone made God happy through their obedience other than Jesus, right? That's always the exception. Never has anyone made God pleased with him by doing enough stuff. No, at every point in which God is pleased with someone, it is because they have entered into a relationship with him through grace, based on faith in his faithfulness. This happens with Noah, with Abraham, Moses, and David, and every other person in the, in the story of scripture. And this is because the only people who ever had a chance to please God with their obedience were Adam and Eve, and they blew it. They failed. And so for all of the rest of us, all of our relationship with God is a gift. It's God's gift to us based in grace, in the work of Christ. I say based in the work of Christ because it is Christ's work that provides grace for our sin. Christ's atoning work is what allows us to know God, both his perfect life and his perfect death. This is what makes us right with God, not our obedience. And here's what I mean though. Not only does your obedience not get you access to God, it doesn't keep it for you. Your union with Christ is not a two-person effort. It is the work of Christ alone. It is not that Christ saved you and now by grace you're living a life that keeps you. No, it is that Christ saved you and his obedience, his perfect life keeps you. Take a minute and let's read a little from Romans 3. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. So Romans 3, Verses 21 through a few others. Paul has just spent a lot of times in, in a lot of time in Roman Romans explaining how jacked up we are, right? How everybody has messed it up, everybody's blown it, none of us can do it. And then down in 21, he explains what our hope is. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that we might be just, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by faith? 
By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul's telling us Old Testament, New Testament, everybody has been justified by grace through the work of Christ. We're not saved, we're not kept, we're not given access by our works. Our works themselves are a gift. And what is then the point of our works? What's the point of our obedience? If it doesn't earn us anything, why is it necessary? Well, briefly, I'm gonna give you two reasons. First and most plainly, it's necessary because God commanded it. It doesn't earn us anything. We're not kept by our obedience or our good works. But nonetheless, God has commanded us to seek lives that, to live to seek lives that please him. And we're enabled to do so by his grace and by the inner working of his spirit. We've been bought at a price. And in order not to profane, to neglect the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, we must live holy lives that honor God. The second reason, this is a bigger picture one. God's commands are always his blessings and his blessings are always his commands. One of my seminary professors put it this way. The great lie of Satan and our sinful hearts is that God's commands and our happiness are mutually exclusive. But the reality is that we were made to live by God's commands and only in them will we find true happiness. And he further illustrates this with a quote from C.S. Lewis that I'll read for you. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gas and it will not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits are designed to burn or the food our, our spirits were designed to feed on. Because we have been made in the image of God and because we have been made whole in Christ, we must begin the work of matching our present reality with this ultimate reality. You see, even though we've been made right with God and he sees us as hidden in Christ, the reality is that this isn't always mirrored, mirrored in our daily lives, at least not mine. I don't know if you live out the Christian life perfectly, you don't, you might think you do, you don't. But the reality is we've been made right with God. We're seen as perfect and whole and yet we struggle to live that out. But our calling as believers is to be transformed from one stage of glory to another by the work of the Holy Spirit being made more and more into the image of Jesus. And so even though your works earn you nothing, you're commanded to live them out so that your current reality begins to match your justified status that you've been given. Here's what I mean by that. If you have encountered Emmanuel, if you have come to saving faith in the work of Christ, you have been made whole. And yet in your current state, you don't perfectly reflect that. You still have flesh clinging to you. You still struggle with your sin. But your relationship with God, your right status before him, your access to his presence is not determined by your works. Those things have already been secured by the work of Christ. So right now, hear me, right now, you are safe. You're safe. Jesus has you and he isn't letting you go. And so now operating out of that security, 
you can and you must make war against your sin and seek to live a faithful life. And this brings us to our last point, choosing a savior or a savior. You see, despite the fact that we can give mental assent to what I just said, we still either outright reject it or struggle to live it out in our daily lives. We tend to fight hard against the reality that our good works, our obedience, our efforts can earn us nothing. Yet again, we resemble the lame man in this way. Look at verse 15 with me in the passage. We're gonna examine maybe the most astonishing part of this passage. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. What in the world is happening here? This man, this lame man who for 38 years has had no access to God, based on the superfluous rules of the religious leaders, this man who Jesus has made whole, who Jesus has removed his shame from him, what is his response? He goes and tattles on Jesus. It's, it's crazy, right? Wild. He goes and tattles on Jesus and says, hey, 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 I carried my bed, but this guy's to blame. Don't be mad at me. It's, it's wild. It's a wild reaction to what Jesus has done for him. But try to remember what we've said about this man. For 38 years, he was disconnected from the religious life of his people. For 38 years, this man knew what it would take to gain access to God and he had no power to do it. And when Jesus asks him, do you wanna be healed? What's his response? It's an it's a excuse, it's a, it's a reason why it can't happen. I've got nobody to help me. I'm not fast enough, that guy's faster. And Jesus heals him. And what is the first thing the man does? He goes straight for the temple. At last, at last he has access to God. At last, he doesn't have to be ashamed. He doesn't have to feel like an outcast. And what happens next? What happens right away? The religious leaders come to him and say, hey, 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 you're breaking the rules. You can't do that. And he quickly shifts the blame onto Jesus as soon as he gets the chance. Why? Why does he do this? Because he's terrified that he's gonna lose access to the temple for breaking the rules to lose access to the very thing that he has longed for for so long. And what is the great irony here? It's that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the presence of God. The very thing that he had been missing for all of those years was right in front of him and he rejects it. Why? Because Jesus threatened his ability to attain the thing he thought would make him whole. I'm gonna say that again. Jesus threatened his ability to attain the thing he thought would make him whole. You see, this man may have been grateful for Jesus healing him, but he was still looking to his own efforts to gain access to God. And so instead of clinging to the Messiah, when he encounters Emmanuel, he brushes him aside and says, I've got this. And here's how we're the same way. You see, just like this man, we're planning about how this time, regardless of how many times we've blown it, this is gonna be the time we make it. Imagine this man, 
time after time, laying by the pool, year after year, thinking about how he's going to make it into that pool, how he's going to be the one who gets healed this time. You and I are the same. We lie to ourselves and tell ourselves over and over again that this time we're going to make it. And even when Jesus does come to us, when he does heal us, like this man, we still want to look to our own efforts to have access to God. We still want to look to our own efforts to be satisfied in life. And when we do this, just like the man, we're rejecting Jesus' role as our savior and looking to ourselves. Why do we do this? Here's why. Because it is simply too hard to be honest with ourselves. It's simply too hard to admit that we can't do it. Too hard to admit that we need a better savior. Karen Honey uh, was one of the greatest psychologists of the 20th century. In fact, she was a pioneer in the field of psychoanalysis and she developed a really powerful, unique theory regarding neurotic tendencies, which is just a fancy way of saying she developed a theory to explain how our brain responds to the world around us. I'm gonna give you the core of that theory real quick. This is her theory. The reality of life is simply too hard for us to come to terms with. The reality that we're unable to protect ourselves, to provide any real meaning or value for our lives, any security or purpose is simply too hard for our conscious minds to come to terms with. So what do we do? Well, Honey theorized that we create an idealized version of ourselves, an idealized version detached from the reality of who we really are, a version that is strong and powerful, over to, able to overcome the difficulties and harsh realities of life, an idealized version that is a God, an idol, a savior. But the devastating truth is that this idealized version of ourselves is completely unattainable, right? It is, we've given it godlike status. There's no way a human could attain it. So what do we do? We have this idealized version of ourselves to protect ourselves. Deep down, we know we can't attain it. What do we do? We protect the idol of our idealized selves. We hide from those who would seek to point out that we don't match up, that we're really nothing like it. We even try to silence our own minds and consciences when it tells us, that we're not like this God we've made. And we do so because we're terrified that if, that if we aren't as good as this idealized version, then nothing can help us. Imagine the man by the pool who for 38 years thought about how he could save himself. And when the savior of the world came to him, healed him and called him to follow him, he rejected him instead choosing to try to be his own savior. And we're the same. We try to ignore and reject how much we need a savior. And we do it because we doubt that he could really love us if he knew how bad we were. So in our fear, we cling to this idealized version of ourselves, hoping that if we can just achieve it, we'll finally be saved. But here's the thing, Jesus knows how bad you are. He knows better than you do. And he still loves you. I'll read again from Romans real quick. Always got time for a little more Romans. Chapter eight, 
We're going to start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, things present or things to come, no powers, no height or depth or anything in all of creation, anything will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right, let's be honest for a minute. It's New Year's Eve, right? It's the time of year post-Christmas, we're all thinking about how to improve ourselves for the new year. And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with goals. Got plenty of my own. But I want you to let this sink in. A better version of yourself is not gonna make you happier. It's not gonna make God happy with you either. You see, goals aren't bad, but chasing an idealized version of yourself and hoping to find salvation in it is never going to work. This won't be your year. I don't care if it's a thinner waist, a fatter bank account, or simply moral self-improvement. None of these things will save you. But you know what, Will? An encounter with Emmanuel. When you see that he has already made you whole, when you see that he has already earned your access to God and in his great love he is keeping you, you can finally stop trying to do it on your own. You can let go of the idealized, idolatrous version of yourself and instead you can be honest about your struggles with sin and your need for a true savior. I'll close with this. I see the kids getting antsy. Part of our vision here at Holy Cross is for you to encounter, know, and show Jesus. So let's talk about encounter for a second. Encountering Jesus is not a one-time deal. <clears throat> yes, you need an initial powerful encounter with Jesus to be made whole. But you also need to continue encountering him for the rest of your life. Even in this passage, the layman gets two encounters. And despite his obstinance, I like to think the layman did become a follower of Jesus. I think it's probably good evidence for that since John knows how long he was lame for. He knows he was lame for 38 years. Probably means John knew him, or at least the Christian community knew him. And so here's what you need as you prepare to start 2024. You don't need to try harder. You need to encounter Emmanuel. You need to meet him in prayer and in the word, and most importantly, in his word preached and in his table every Sunday. The light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So my prayer for you is that by the work of the Holy Spirit, the light of Christ would shine on you and that you would encounter Emmanuel. Will you pray with me? God of grace, we pray that you would truly bring us to an encounter with you that through the work of Christ and the work of your Holy Spirit, 
you would make us whole. And that as we are made whole, we would not hesitate, we would not draw back, but that we would enter in boldness into your presence, knowing that Christ has already made that possible for us and that there's nothing we can do to mess that up. In your goodness, make us obedient. Let the, let the good things you've done for us motivate our obedience as we seek to live restored lives as your creation. And as we go into a new year, thinking about all the things we need to get straight, help us to take a deep breath and to rest in the fact that Jesus has already made our biggest things straight for us. And we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.